Hello and welcome to the podcast of Tech EU. I am your host Andrew Degeler and today we are going to discuss the latest news in European tech, then we're going to talk a little bit in more depth about SPACs and then I will play an interview with Jambu Palaniapan of Omers Ventures on the topic of food marketplaces sprouting around Europe. But before we get to that, let me talk you through some of the most important news headlines of the week. According to the data from Crunchbase, European venture funding has gone down 17% for the first three quarters of 2020 compared to the peak funding year of 2019. However, at the same time, the report goes, I quote, this third quarter captured the highest funding since Q3 2019, with a particularly strong funding month in September 2020, the second highest funding month in the last two years, the quote ends. This growth is also thanks to a series of pretty large funding deals, uh, namely in Q3, 20 European companies raised rounds above $100 million, and that is the highest count of companies in that range within a single quarter over the last two years. Another interesting point in the report is that the two biggest European venture ecosystems, the UK and Germany, both secured less funding in 2020 than in 2019. However, at the same time, four out of the next five leading countries have all experienced funding growth in 2020. These are France, Sweden, Netherlands and Finland. It is, of course, too early to talk about leveling of European funding landscape or anything like that, but, I mean, we can certainly see the rise of the ecosystems that often are considered second tier or inferior to the biggest ones. So I guess we've got some good news for the European venture landscape in the third quarter of this year. In this week's sizable funding rounds, Irish startup LearnUpon has landed 56 million US dollars, which is its first major capital raise since it was founded in 2012. Irish Times reports that, I quote, LearnUpon has developed a popular cloud-based learning management system that is used by more than 1,000 companies to deliver online training to their employees, customers, partners, and resellers. Clients of the company include Booking.com, Twilio, and and desk. Next up, China has been very vocal about its unhappiness with the behavior of Sweden in regards to Chinese telecom hardware makers Huawei and ZTE. Sweden has banned both companies from providing their solutions for the country's 5G network, citing security considerations. And that announcement was made on Tuesday uh, this week, and then over the next day Reuters quoted the Chinese foreign ministry as saying that, I quote, China expresses strong satisfaction with Sweden, the quote ends. It also said that Sweden should reconsider its decision to avoid, I quote again, a negative impact on its own companies, which sounds kind of threatening to me. And to finish this overview on a bit of a more positive note, Nokia will bring 4G connectivity to the moon. According to a press release by the company, it has been selected by NASA as the provider of the first LTE communication system on the planet. Nokia's technology, I quote, will be used to build and deploy the first ultra-compact, low-power, space-hardened end-to-end LTE solution on the lunar surface in late 2022. Nokia is partnering with Intuitive Machines for this mission to integrate this groundbreaking network into their lunar lander and deliver it to the lunar surface, the quote ends.
Now, let us move on back to Earth and uh, talk about SPACs. So if you have been following tech news from the US and or listening to US-based podcasts, you may be sick of hearing about SPACs by now. If that's not the case, though, let me remind you what SPACs are. So SPAC, S-P-A-C, stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Company, also known as a blank check company. In a nutshell, a SPAC is a publicly traded company that is founded with a sole purpose of acquiring another company. And the acquisition is normally structured as a reverse takeover, which means that it essentially brings that acquired company to the public markets uh, in a sort of a sped up way. You could say that for a business, at least in the US, selling to a SPAC is a relatively frictionless way to go public. In theory, anyone at all can found a SPAC, but in practice, of course, it usually happened to be people with proven track record in investing or at least in business in general. It's not, it's not unlike raising a VC fund. So as a SPAC founder or sponsor, you need to find enough people to buy into your SPAC's IPO before they know which company you're actually going to acquire. For investors, uh, US-based SPACs are pretty low risk at the same time because the investor can take their money out uh, of a SPAC pretty much at any time. So here's how it works. When the SPAC has gone public, the founder can communicate the acquisition target to the shareholders. All shareholders can then vote for or against this target. If the majority votes positively, the deal goes through. Interestingly enough, you can in fact vote against the deal, but not withdraw your money from the SPAC. And vice versa, vote for the deal, but then get your money out before the acquisition happens. That's why in most cases the deals offered by SPAC founders actually go through. There is no good reason uh, for uh, the investors to vote against them. For more nitty-gritty on SPACs, I will link to a great Q&A piece on uh, TechCrunch that goes into more details about uh, American SPACs, but for now the basic knowledge will suffice. So in the US, SPACs have been all the rage uh, over this year and uh, I guess past year as well. And I have been hearing about them all the time in the US-focused podcasts that I'm listening to, looking at you, Equity, and I have had this question in the back of my mind all the time, so how about Europe? Are we going to end up replicating uh, this trend with a few months or years delay, as uh, sometimes happens uh, with the European ecosystem? And uh, uh, this week and last week, I was able to talk to people who understand SPACs much better than I do, so I guess I can now try and summarize what I think is actually going on. First, a quick piece of uh, data. The FT reports that SPACs have raised 48 billion US dollars only this year in the US, while in the UK this number is zero. The reason, per the same FT article, is that the UK SPAC regulations set by the FCA are less investor-friendly. And I'm going to quote the piece here. Under the rules set by the financial regulator, trading cannot resume until a deal prospectus is published for which there is no deadline. That means SPAC investors who do not support the takeover and wish to sell their shares can have their money locked up for some time. Several SPACs that listed in 2017 remain suspended. The quote ends. So the question I've been trying to get an answer for is a bit different though, and namely, do we actually need SPACs in Europe at all? What problem in the ecosystem would they be solving? So the quick answer here uh, that I have come to is that most probably US-style SPACs would not be extremely popular in Europe, and that's probably why we don't see them here. 
The long answer goes like this. First, why are SPACs actually so popular in the US, both among the investors and the companies willing to go public this way? For a company, going public through selling to a SPAC is a way to circumvent uh, the traditional IPO price discovery mechanism. Here's what it means. In the US, a whole lot of IPOs launch with a so-called POP, which means that the share price goes up very sharply, often by more than 50% on the first day of trading. This sounds great on the outset, of course, and it can be seen as a sign that the company in question is successful on the public markets, which is often indeed the case. But it also means that the company has sold a large amount of its shares at the initial IPO price with a pretty big discount. So what I'm saying is that there are a number of restrictions and regulation in the US that make it harder for a company to find the right IPO price before it actually floats, hence the POPs. On the other hand, what is in it for an investor in, in a SPAC? In the US, again, there is a bunch of regulations that offer protection for SPAC investors. The main ones I have already mentioned, you can basically withdraw your money at any time and you can vote for or against an acquisition target. What's even better, to encourage an investor to put money into a SPAC, founders usually throw in extra stock warrants, which you can actually keep even if you vote against the deal. So all in all, a SPAC for an investor is essentially a free option with very, very low risk. Now, what about Europe in general and the UK in particular? Uh, we have also got a set of basis uh, sort of level EU-wide regulations that provide a framework for companies going public and for SPACs, among other things. If we follow the UK example, there is a really big difference in the IPO price discovery possibilities. For example, companies are allowed to use research analysts before uh, the IPO happens, and these analysts sometimes reach out to literally thousands of investors and meet with hundreds of them in person before the actual IPO. Okay, I don't think they meet them in person anymore, but probably it's more like Zoom calls. But still, it's like thousands and, and thousands of uh, uh, hours of meetings sometimes. So as a result of, this, uh, of these different regulations, uh, over three years from early 2017 to early 2020 in the UK, about 1% of IPOs popped by more than 50% and only 13% popped by more than a quarter. In the same period in the US, 22% of IPOs popped by more than a quarter and more than 8% popped by more than half. And that's eight times more than in the UK. So the price discovery issue in, is not quite there in Europe. How about investor protection? This part also works very differently. In the UK, you as an investor cannot actually vote for the acquisition target, which means that you are putting a lot more trust in the SPAC founding team. You can, however, get your money back if you don't like the target, but that cannot happen right away. Uh, that's what the FT was mentioning before. Trading of the SPAC shares is suspended the moment the target is announced until sufficient information about the deal is made public, usually but not necessarily in the form of a deal prospectus. In practice, it means a delay of up to three months in most cases. So the way I see the situation is that currently SPACs are much less attractive in Europe than they are in the US. My understanding is also that apart from that trading suspension, there are no big barriers really to bringing US-style SPACs to Europe. The regulations across the continent are quite similar, but no one market uh, seems to be trying to become the SPAC hotbed of source of the region. 
Of course, things may change in the future, but the way it stands now, I would not really expect a SPAC craze that's comparable to what we can see in the US. If you've got another take on this or want to add anything, by all means, do reach out to me on Twitter at tech underscore EU or by email at podcast at tech.eu. I would love to hear what you think. In the meantime, it is time for the interview of this episode. Let me play you a conversation between our editor Robin Wouters and uh, Jambu Palanyapan of Omer's Ventures. Hey, this is Robin Waters joining the Takiyu podcast this time remotely, of course, as usual. Uh, it's Jambu Palanyapan. He is the uh, one of the partners at a venture firm called Omer's Ventures, and he spent quite a lot of time at Uber in several executive roles. So, Jambu, thank you so much for taking the time to join the Takiyu podcast. Um, you're joining us from London, but maybe you can uh, introduce yourself a little bit and how you ended up in London. Yeah. Hey, Robin. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Really excited to spend some time with you and talk about all things tech in in Europe. Um, yeah. No. You can tell from my accent that I am uh, San Franciscan, actually, originally. So, so from the U.S., born and raised in the Silicon Valley. My parents were originally from India, and they moved to the U.S. And they're um, they're actually both in the tech industry. My mom is a software developer, and so that's just sort of the world that I grew up around. And uh, uh, ended up back in tech after university was a uh, in various roles at uh, Intuit, a well-known kind of financial services company, and uh, had a bit of an itch to join a startup called Uber in 2012. Uh, that was actually the the journey that took me out of the U.S. So left the U.S. in 2012 thinking I was going somewhere for a six-month assignment, and eight years later, I'm in London, married with a child that I'm 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 uh, I'm, I'm thinking is going to end up with a pretty strong British accent. So that's that's <laughs> the world. Fantastic. And I know when you joined Uber, they were still relatively small, less than 100 people, I think. Uh, and I think one of your first roles is sort of international expansion. What, what do you think made you fit for, for that specifically? Because you spent most of your time in the Valley before that. So what made you you know, good for a role for, for international expansion for a company like that? Yeah, listen, I, I'll be honest with you in that I had a bit of a background. My parents from, you know, uh, uh, not from the US and, and I speak Spanish reasonably well. But it was luck. Like, I think anybody who, who says it's anything but is is probably lying. So no, I was fortunate to join the company at a time where internationalizing the business was a major part of the focus. It was primarily a U.S. business at that time. There was a question about um, where and how to expand, and I was very fortunate to be sent off on a plane to go and do that. I actually, I think my first fifty-two weeks at Uber, I traveled to thirty-five countries, and actually didn't have an apartment. I didn't have a house for about four years. Uh, just lived out of a suitcase, which, you know, sounds sounds a lot more glamorous than maybe it was. Well, as a frequent traveler, I can relate. Although I have to say, I miss it quite a lot this this year. But we'll get to that in a minute. Um, and um, what's your role now? What do you do these days? I'm a partner at Omer's Ventures. Uh, Omer's Ventures is part of the broader Omer's portfolio. Omer's is a large Canadian fund that invests on behalf of about 500,000 municipal workers in the Canadian province of Ontario across various types of businesses, including public markets, real estate, private equity, and for the last 10 years has been a direct venture investor, initially in Canada, including investing in companies like Shopify reasonably early on, but over the last several years expanding. And now we have offices in San Francisco and here in London, looking broadly across the US, Canada, and in Europe. Great. And how did you end up at Omer's? First investment role, right? 
That's right. Yeah. So I left Uber in 2018 uh, after six wonderful but very intense years. And I'm super grateful for the experience. I feel like, you know, it really shaped who I am as a person and as a, a professional as well. I was very tired at the end of that, right? I was exhausted, probably 15 kilos heavier than I am now, and um, just wanted to take a break. When I left and decided to relocate to London, I got a lot of opportunities to meet lots of great founders and startups was initially asked to join Atomico as an executive in residence. And that was a wonderful experience. I'm very grateful to Nicholas Enstrom and Neil Wass for really opening the door uh, for me into the venture world. And the intent of that role was really um, spend some time with them, uh, learn a little bit about the industry, help some of the portfolio companies, um, and then potentially go and start my own business or think about kind of what role I wanted to take in the startup world later. But what I actually found was that there weren't that many ex-operators that had become investors in Europe. It's much more common in Silicon Valley. And so as I started working with startups and founders, there was clear interest in applying kind of the practical lessons, both good and bad, that we learned from scaling Uber and Uber Eats over the last you know uh, six years into a startup ecosystem. And so I thought more seriously about um, you know a venture opportunity. And at that time, again, coincidence met the you know, the, the outstanding team at Omer's, people like Harry Briggs here in London. Harry's, you know, been an incredible friend and mentor to me. And um, the opportunity to build a new venture fund, uh, investing, you know, quite frankly, the, the money of, you know, normal people uh, in this uh, maybe privileged asset class um, and do it with a, a team that we were able to build um, was really compelling. So uh, that's that's the full story. Yeah, you mentioned Uber Eats. Um, I forgot to mention that the last two years that Uber, uh, you're actually heading uh, Uber Eats in the EMEA region. Uh, that gives you a lot of insights into what I think is one of the most interesting sectors here in Europe, which is the whole dynamics of the food delivery takeaway uh, marketplaces and the consolidation that's been going on in the last few years. Um, you're also a non-executive director. You were a non-executive director at Just Eat and now Takeaway.com. Uh, now that it's one group, of course. Um, so that gives you I guess a lot of historical perspective on how this sector has has grown in the last, let's say, you know, four to five years. So maybe I know this is a broad question, but um, like, how has it changed from when you um, were putting Uber Eats in the market here in Europe uh, versus now, like four or five years later? Yeah, the structural shifts in a really, frankly, quite compressed period of time are have been incredible to watch. I, I think the way I, I think about them is I bucket it into three areas. One is the role of, cust of customer choice, right? And, and I guess what I call it is the Amazon primification of food delivery, which is food delivery went from this, you know, infrequent, maybe unhealthy um, experience to increasing frequency and use cases. And so now it's not just maybe a Friday night pizza. You may order your work lunches through food delivery. You may order your kids' baby food through food delivery platforms. You may order coffees through food delivery platforms. Um, you may use meal kits, right? And, and you may order from your favorite fast food restaurants that five years ago weren't on food delivery platforms. So what I call occasions are increasing. And that is really ripe for growth. You think about how many times during the week you're eating or drinking something. We're, we're talking about know, maybe 20, 30 times. Um, how many of those occasions were, on a, were from a delivery platform a few years ago? And, and what does that look like now? And I think maybe what's most interesting is actually what does that look like in the future? And, and so that's what we're spending a lot of our time doing. The second area is around software. 
right? And actually technology adding value to the food ecosystem. That's everything from, you know, what we've read about in terms of engineered proteins to urban farming to uh, supply chain and infrastructure software, all the way to new B2C consumer apps that deliver um, that deliver different products. And that role of technology and, and the role of technology in kind of called the plumbing of the food delivery industry, of the food industry rather, has been really remarkable to see. And I think the third area is what is the future of food and what does that look like? And I'll give you some examples, right? One is, um, you know, here in London, setting up a traditional restaurant in a busy street may cost you, you know, somewhere between 250 and 500,000 pounds in terms of leases and fit outs and insurance and, uh, you know, hiring. But now you can go into a uh, commercial kitchen, sell your product on a food delivery app or a takeaway app, and you can get up and running for 3,000 pounds a month. And that cost of capital difference and that quantum difference, that speed to market difference, I think that will dramatically change what we think of in terms of what is a restaurant. And that's what makes me really excited about the sector. Yeah, that makes for a very interesting uh, market dynamics for sure. Um, from those three, what would you say is the most interesting ones for uh, new startups, like early stage startups today, if they want to address this market? Because it's very hard to go, go up against the takeaways and the delivery heroes of this world at this point. Um, but where's the innovation happening? Where should startups focus their attention when you look at the food industry as a whole? I think there's very, very interesting things happening on the, let's call it the science side of things, right? Everything from the future of uh, fish aquaculture to uh, how can you reduce carbon footprint associated with the transportation of meat and, 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 and vegetables all the way to actually, you know, can you replace animal protein with synthetics? Obviously, the barriers to entry there are quite high, right? They tend to be extremely sort of uh, R&D intensive businesses. I think where I've seen the most impact from entrepreneurs, particularly at the early stage, has been on what I call the plumbing side, right? The infrastructure software in this industry that supports an existing ecosystem. And that support could come from areas like labor and how you aggregate labor across various parts of the ecosystem. It could come from areas like marketing and how you reach new customers. Or for example, we have a portfolio company called Deliverect, a Belgium-based company that's extremely focused on building the better operating system for whatever the future of a kitchen looks like. Integrating uh, delivery into existing platforms rather than it being you know, a separate uh, workflow and tool. And so that area, the software area, is where we feel like efficiency can actually drive up customer experience and also create really unique companies that have really global potential. Is this also your focus within OMERS to look at sort of uh, innovations in the food industry or do you go beyond that? And maybe as a related question, are there lots of analogies to make between sort of that, you know, the market dynamics of food delivery and other direct-to-consumer platforms? Yeah, um, it's definitely one of the areas that, that I'm focused on. Um, we're particularly focused on the infrastructure and that software piece that I mentioned. We're also looking broadly at, at many other parts of it and, and always curious to, to learn more. Um, it also helps that we've got this transatlantic team, people in the US and Canada and here in Europe, because it's interesting to see the differences in approach between the various geographies. We are looking much more broadly than just that sector as a team. And, and I am personally uh, looking at areas beyond that as well. But I'd say you know a lot of our investments focus on 
software platforms that can really change the future dynamics of an existing industry, whether that's healthcare, fintech, food, e-commerce, logistics. And as a, I'm going to call you a Silicon Valley veteran, uh, if I may, <laughs> uh, but you know, being born and raised in San Francisco and having, having spent lots of time in the tech industry, how do you rate the European tech ecosystems as a whole compared to Silicon Valley in particular? I think the rate of change from when I first started coming to Europe regularly in 2012 to today is night and day. And I think the two main reasons for that are one, I think top graduates and early career people are interested in working in tech, right? For a variety of reasons across countries in Europe, UK, Germany, France, Benelux, Spain, Nordics, Eastern Europe. This is an industry that people are excited about joining. I think the reason for that is one, impact, and two, opportunity. And that, I think, wasn't the case. When I remember when I came in 2012 to London and I met a lot of people who worked at banks and consulting firms, it was sort of an afterthought. And now those people are at startups. The second is um, what I would call comfort with ambiguity, right? You think about startups, and I think one of the most important skills at a startup is being comfortable with ambiguity, being comfortable with the unknown. Because if what you're trying to get to is 100% confidence in any decision, you're going to fail. So I think the evolution in that comfort with ambiguity of not knowing, frankly, if the company will exist in two years or not, is actually what allows people to take risks and build and create and innovate. Still a long way to go, right? But I really like the the evolution that I've seen. I spend a fair amount of time uh, mentoring high school students here in the UK, and they're, they're all interested in entrepreneurship. They're all interested in starting businesses. They all seem to have sort of side hustles where they build websites for people in their neighborhoods. And, and I don't think you would have seen that five, six years ago. Good. And I hope that's a trend that will uh, continue uh, to proliferate, uh, not just in the UK, but across Europe, because I think it's very important for the, the mindset to change, to actually want to start companies. Uh, needs to change quite dramatically, I think. Um, how do you rate the venture industry, though? Because, and I, I know this is sort of your first job in an investment firm, but I'm sure you know something about the venture industry in Silicon Valley. How do they compare? Or how mature do you think the venture industry in Europe is today? I, I think the thing that you realize when you spend time with folks in the venture uh, industry in San Francisco and Silicon Valley and in the U.S. more broadly is there is an incredibly long time horizon to their view and what they're willing to believe. And that is a really powerful thing. I think the second is there is an incredible willingness to kind of go up against a big incumbent. And that's encouraged, if not, you know, lauded. And I think those two things create an environment within the VC community, within the, you know, captive pool of employees, within the founder community, even within the, you know, the law firms and banks that support the startups, uh, that, that anything is possible and that anything can be done. And you shouldn't be taking the safe route out because venture is a risky asset class. So, you know, what are we all doing here if we're not really aiming big? And I think the, that, that's, that to me is, is an area where Europe has changed a lot in the time that I've been here and been exposed to the industry. But I think there's still, you know, there's still some ways to go in terms of those two areas. I can't believe we've gone 16 minutes already without mentioning the coronavirus pandemic, uh, but I'm still going to bring it up. And I do this in every interview because it's very hard to get around. Um, how has it, in fact, impacted um, the operations within OMERS and how has it impacted your portfolio so far? 
Yeah, so so we're very fortunate from a portfolio perspective that we have a few companies in particular that have seen incredible tailwinds from the pandemic. We uh, work with a company in Sweden called FirstVet, which is a telemedicine product for pets that has seen a massive impact in positive ways from people having to you know, have their pets cared for online. And the company I mentioned earlier, Deliverect in Belgium, which is infrastructure software for the food delivery industry, has obviously seen massive tailwinds and growth in their business. Um, so, so we're fortunate in how that's played out. In terms of tactics and how it's impacted us, I think it has really made us look deep at, number one, sectors we know well, right? So sectors where we have a strong understanding of existing uh, dynamics and have, you know, really a prepared mind for what is ahead. The second thing is it is hard to get to know people over video conference and Zoom and whatnot. And so, you know, we tried to find creative ways to do that, whether it was going for walks with founders um, during times where we were able to travel and doing that frequently, even if it was for short trips. Um, And we found that to be really invaluable. So I'm not necessarily one of these folks that is fully bought into the, the, you know, the future of the world is everybody working from home. I think uh, there's certainly some benefits to the flexibility, but I think as humans, we all crave that interaction as well. And, and I think that, you know, the, the startup ecosystem is surprisingly built on chance encounters and that serendipity is hard to replicate online. And so in terms of um, these tailwinds that you described for some of your portfolio companies, are they temporary or do you think uh, a lot of the changes that we see today because of the pandemic are going to be lasting changes that will completely change the way that we work and eat and, and order things online, etc. So my in-laws live in the west of England, and they're in their uh, 70s. And as part of the pandemic, they used uh, Sainsbury's delivery for the first time. And they used it, and I spoke to them after, and they said, this is amazing. Why haven't we been doing this the whole time? I think that that anecdote for me is sort of how I think about that, which is I think we're still in many of the categories that have seen tailwinds from the pandemic, whether it's e-commerce, food, uh, e-learning, we're still in the early days of that innovation cycle. And the captive opportunity is massive, right? You see sort of the e-commerce penetration as a percentage of total retail, for example, still comparatively low, changing fast. So I, I still, I think that 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 to me feels lasting, I think some of the specific behaviors, I think, will evolve and change. And actually, I think whenever this is all over, people are going to want to go back to restaurants. People are going to want to go to cinemas. People are going to want to go to sporting events. I also think this idea of, you know, private concert in your home or being able to question some of the historic rules that have been in place um, that were able to be shifted because of the pandemic, I think, are, you know, are potentially lasting. And what about some of the negative impacts? What are some of the negative things within your portfolio, but also like in general in society and uh, and business? Yeah, I mean, listen, I think the first is obviously on the health side, right? And I think there is clearly a chance that this happens again, right? If you think about the kind of cocktail of things that happened and how interconnected the world is or was, you know, the spread of this is almost a, a, a symptom of that interconnectedness, right? And so how do we end up in a world that is still interconnected, that is still open, where barriers are still low and borders are still open, but comfortable with what that is, right? And which of those things doesn't come back? Are you are you going to be prepared to, you know, go sit in a 60,000 seat football stadium to watch a mediocre match? I don't know if I am. 
but maybe I'll go for you know Arsenal versus Spurs. To me, it's still it's still unknown. But I think the balance between determining what is let's call it critical to us and what is optional, I think will determine a lot of it. Yeah. And speaking of negative um, impact, what are what are some of the things that you find very troubling or problematic in Europe when it comes to you know the technology ecosystem as a whole? I, I think the first thing is I think immigration policies in Europe need to reflect the reality of the landscape, right? Which is there are some countries with extremely strong technical education and systems, and there are some countries, quite frankly, that do not have that. And so if you've got limited technical educational infrastructure, you have to have a reasonably open immigration policy. And I don't quite see that always playing out. I think the second area is around how companies scale beyond just their home country, right? The challenge and opportunity of Europe is, you know, 28 member states in the EU, you have the UK opportunity. That's great, but that's many different languages and cultures and VAT systems. And so how do you actually build a business that's relevant in not maybe 28, but 10 of those versus the, you know, let's call it the US opportunity or the Brazil opportunity or the China opportunity, where one product, one country will get you more opportunity. And so I, I still think about lowering barriers to reaching multiple countries in Europe as an important one. And then I think the third area is really around, you know, one of the most powerful things in Silicon Valley is the what I would call the early employee founder ecosystem, who when people have success, their first kind of move is write angel checks to people they knew, right? People who worked for them, people in their networks. And that ecosystem is circular, right? And creates and begets more opportunities, more companies, more startups, more wealth, and, and it funnels and feeds into itself. I think that's a little bit less common here. Right, and it's changing. It was amazing to see, for example, Daniel X's uh, statement. Uh, I think it was last week about investing in, in, and 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 such a large commitment from him personally towards big ideas. And I think the and 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 I think the more of that we have, both from people in the technology world, but also from the non-tech world, the better. The last thing, and this is a little bit specific, but I find it a really interesting difference. Let's say you're, uh, you know, let's say you're a legacy. Uh, you know, let's make it up, insurance company in Europe. I I think there is more of an opportunity for the startup ecosystem to be connected to called the traditional corporate ecosystem for the purposes of M&A. Because in the U.S., actually a massive percentage of exits in the U.S. are kind of, we call it, not massive exits, but M&A from a startup that's disrupting an industry, let's say insurance, to a legacy insurance company who is building for the future. That doesn't happen as much here for a variety of reasons, I think related to generally M&A strategy, the valuation of companies, how the market reacts to that, the fact that many large businesses in Europe are private companies versus the US where that's a little bit less rare, and, and, the, and, the, and the border point that I mentioned. So um, I think that actually is a big tactical reason for the, the sort of diversion in, in financial outcomes. Yeah, great. Those are some really good points. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to conclude the interview, but just like a, a little bit of a cheeky question maybe to conclude. Do you see yourself staying in the venture industry? Because it's if you work in an early stage um, investment company like that and you have lots of experience as an operator, the chances are at some point you're going to meet an entrepreneur that you're going to say like, 
you know, this is the next Travis and I want to be on board. Like, do you see yourself joining uh, one of these scale-ups down the line or do you see yourself staying on as a VC? No, I love I love this VC world. It's an incredible opportunity to have impact across many companies and many sectors and work with many founders. I think the way I think about the transition is it's, I played, you know, I played in the football match, right? I had six great years. I would say it's probably closer to 10 in, in real years from how much <laughs> I aged during that period. And well, I've got so much gray in my, in my beard. And now I'm in the, call it the, the coaching phase of, of it. And I think the impact and potential and energy that I get from founders and the teams we, we work with is extremely rewarding. Great. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, see some of your future investments at Homerstein. And I uh, can't thank you enough for your time. It was very insightful. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. And yeah, best of luck with everything. Thanks, Robin. Take care. And this is it for our today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show today. Please help us spread the word, tell a friend or colleague about us, and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse, that is sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at podcast at tech.eu. I will talk to you next Friday, so have a good week and take care. Bye-bye.